Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather Charlie Chaplin and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Namulanta Combo here with some very exciting news. Dear Daughter is back for a new series. I'm putting together a handbook to life for daughters everywhere, full of stories and advice to help navigate life. That's Dear Daughter from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. We're recording this at 14 hours GMT on Friday the 1st of March. Thousands of people defy a heavy police presence in Moscow to pay their final respects to the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. There are growing calls for a full investigation into Israel's role in the deaths of dozens of Palestinians trying to get aid in Gaza. And many people in Iran are expected to boycott today's election, the first since the death of Masa Amini. Also in the podcast, researchers say a billion people around the world are now classed as obese. And I've spotted some of these little creatures and yet just recognised that something wasn't quite right. This particular species, the story's just beginning. Is global warming responsible for a new discovery in British waters? Thousands of people have defied a heavy police presence to pay their final respects to the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died in an Arctic prison two weeks ago. The ceremony went ahead in southern Moscow despite hundreds of arrests in recent days, difficulties in finding a hearse and a gravedigger and delays in handing over his body. After the funeral, people gathered on the surrounding streets to watch the black car carrying his coffin to a nearby cemetery. I am a mother of many children. I have four children. And I understand that this man gave his life for my children, for their future. I can't speak calmly now because I don't even know if the loss of a personal relative will cause me greater emotions than I feel now. This is impossible to survive. A very difficult loss for me. The man whom we came to see off today did so much for everyone around me that I think it would simply be wrong not to come. We came here because, unfortunately, that's all we can do today. This is our civic position. I came here to honour the memory of Alexei Navalny. 
He was one of our best citizens. This is a man who defended freedom. He fought corruption and did much more for our country than the current government's doing. And we will appreciate that with time. Our Eastern Europe correspondent Sarah Rainsford was watching. There were those extraordinary scenes, first of all, inside the church itself, that open coffin, uh, Navalny's mother beside it. You know, a man who was obviously so vibrant, so charismatic, so dynamic in life. Seeing him there in that open coffin was really quite a moment, I think, for many Russians and obviously for all of those people who are are gathered there to support uh, Alexei Navalny and to show their support for him right now. And they've been throwing flowers in front of the hearse as it's been making its final journey towards the cemetery. Um, There are flowers on the front, on the bonnet of the car. Striking that, of course, those perhaps closest to Alexei Navalny were not there. His wife, his widow now was not there. His children were not there. They're all living in exile for their safety. She has posted, Yulia Navalny has posted a, a comment on Twitter talking about 26 years of utter happiness and thanking Alexei Navalny for that. But, you know, this was a funeral that was banished to a distant suburb of Moscow. Marina is where Alexei Navalny used to live. You know, it's not the city centre. This is not a mass gathering right by the Kremlin. And that was deliberate. But of course, even though they forced people to the outskirts. Many, many people did turn up and they've been shouting things, not just Navalny's name, which in itself is significant, but no to war. They've been shouting Putin is a killer, which is, of course, what his family claim happened to him. And they've been shouting freedom to political prisoners. So it has become an act of politics as well. And banished though it may have been to outer Moscow, it did happen. Despite a heavy police presence, there was a a demonstration of solidarity and support. Yes. And, and bear in mind, this might not have happened in the sense that there was such pressure on Alexei Navalny's mother um, at the beginning when he died. Uh, they were not handing over his body for nine days. So this entire process has been fraught with difficulty right up to the moment of Alexei Navalny's coffin arriving in that church, uh, that service inside and now the burial taking place. And I mean... I can't be there. Many people can't be there. But the videos that are coming from there suggest that he's being buried to the tune from his favourite film, Terminator 2. And Mm. apparently uh, Sinatra has been played as well. So a man iconoclastic and and, and very unusual in life now being buried in a very unusual way too. Sarah Rainsford talking to Johnny Diamond. And the Czech chargé d'affaires in Moscow who attended the funeral said it showed that ordinary people are not indifferent to what is happening in Russia. It is a silent but clear message of disapproval of the situation in Russia. The extent of the security measures confirms the Russian regime is afraid of its own citizens. France and Germany have added their voices to calls for a full investigation into the deaths of Palestinians waiting for aid in northern Gaza. Israeli troops opened fire as people scrambled for food supplies. The Hamas-run territory's health ministry said more than 110 people were killed. Yoland Nell reports from Jerusalem. There have been international expressions of shock over the events in Gaza that led to dozens of Palestinians being killed while trying to secure aid for their hungry families. Many countries have demanded a full explanation from Israel. France's President Emmanuel Macron called for truth and justice, while the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres said an independent investigation would be required. Palestinian witnesses and officials said Israeli forces opened fire on the crowds. Israel says its soldiers used only warning shots to drive people back as aid lorries were being looted. It says most victims were trampled or run over. At the same time as the latest events have highlighted the depth of the humanitarian crisis in Gaza while fighting continues, a senior Hamas official has warned they could derail the latest ceasefire talks. Yolan now. 
Iran's last parliamentary election four years ago had the lowest turnout since the revolution. But a possible boycott could mean today's poll proves even less popular. Following the anti-hijab protests over the death in police custody of Masa Amini in 2022, people are unhappy at the lack of social and political freedoms and Iran's dire economy. Many moderate candidates have been disqualified, so the hardline clerics are expected to maintain their grip on power. Baran Abbasi of the BBC Persian Service is following developments in Iran. There are no credible independent polling in Iran that it can refer to, but some state agencies have conducted some polling uh, which would turn out between 30 and 40 percent, which would be the lowest turnout in the history of the Islamic Republic since its establishment uh, 45 years ago. A large number of candidates have been disqualified from running in the elections, almost all reformists, a large number of independents and even centrist conservatives have not been allowed to run. Yeah, as you say, the moderates, even a a moderate former president shut out. But it is a quite important vote. The assembly of experts could well decide who is Iran's next supreme leader. Exactly. There are two elections being held in Iran at the moment, uh, one parliamentary elections and one assembly of experts that is tasked with choosing the next leader, a figure that holds an absolute power in Iran. And um, the current leader, Ali Khamenei, he's uh, 84, and uh, the assembly of experts has an eight-year term. So it is widely expected that the incoming assembly of experts would be the one that would choose the next leader. And the Assembly of Experts has 88 seats. Only 144 candidates have been allowed to run in their elections. Even the sitting member and former president, Hassan Rouhani, has been banned. And it seems that the leader, the current leader, is trying to only allow his most ardent supporters into that assembly. And what is the mood of people in Iran after those protests were eventually put down? A large number of people have boycotted the vote, as I said. Uh, the Iranian people are grappling with an ailing economy, a crushed protest movement, and also massive corruption amongst the Iranian officials, as well as distrust in the regime. They have lost hope that they can bring about meaningful changes through the ballot box. Baran Abbasi of the BBC Persian Service. India has retained its title as the world's fastest-growing major economy, with figures for the final three months of 2023 showing it expanded at 8.4%. That is good news for the Prime Minister Narendra Modi ahead of the general election this year. He seems well on course to win. A recent poll on global leaders put his approval rating at a whopping 78%. But after 10 years in office, how has he managed to be so popular? Our South Asia correspondent Samira Hussain has been finding out. Prime Minister Modi. Modi waved. The man who's driving the India... A very important centrepiece of the entire BJP project has been the use of media. Seema Chisti is the editor of The Wire, an online news publication in India. Mainstream media whose job is to hold governments questionable is not happening. So Mr. Modi stands tall. The cult is allowed to build up because you have 500 news channels, you have 60 websites all saying the same thing. I take a trip to India's agricultural heartlands. I want to find out about government programs that give out money and rations. The welfare schemes have been so popular and so beneficial that some farmers, like Sanjay, whose fields I'm currently walking through, well, he's now switched his allegiance I was a Congress supporter, but then Narendra Modi came with his ideologies, his way of working, 
and the way he connects to the people on the ground. He understands people's way of thinking and what they want. Now I vote for the BJP. When people are voting straight, either in the name of Mr. Modi or against him. Prashant Kishore is a political strategist and he's worked with many political parties, including the BJP. A lot of schemes that used to be schemes run by government departments are all now being presented and repackaged. Pradhan Mantri. So everything. So Pradhan Mantri meaning Prime Minister. Prime Minister. So everything coming not from the government, not from any other person. It's all coming from Pradhan Mantri. Marching through the streets of Varanasi, the right-wing Hindu nationalist organization known as the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, or RSS, seen as the ideological fountainhead for the ruling party. The RSS is entrenched in families. It's a deeply conservative, inward-looking militia, which was founded in 1925, which Mr. Modi and his party pays obeisance to. Mr. Modi doesn't just respect the RSS. He became a member in his teens. And it's that brand of Hindu nationalism that was behind the demolition of the 16th century mosque three decades earlier, where the Ram Temple now sits. Inaugurated by the prime minister of a secular country, who made it an election promise to bring the Lord Ram back to his birthplace in Ayodhya. Now a court in Mr. Modi's home constituency, Ruled Hindus can worship in the basement of the Gyanvapi Mosque. The local Muslim community is fearful for their place in Narendra Modi's India. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. There is pain because we are not able to do anything. We have been praying there for 50 years, but we can't do anything to save it. I don't understand. Is this the way our country will run? And for how long will you suppress us? Modi's embrace of Hindu nationalism and his energetic projection of himself as a strong leader have alarmed minorities, but will still likely win him a third term. That report from India by Samira Hussain. Unlike their land-based relatives, sea slugs are renowned for their variety and beauty. But like many creatures, it seems they are affected by global warming. Scientists say they've discovered a new species in British waters that would be more at home in Spanish seas. Rick Edwards spoke to Ross Bullimore from the Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Aquaculture Science. How do we make a discovery like this with new species? Sounds really simple, but it's kind of not to downplay it. But it's simply a case of recognizing something that's popped up in front of you doesn't look normal, and that was exactly the case. Myself and colleagues on a, a routine fish stock assessment survey, sorting through the fish, and I focus on everything else that lives on the seabed around the fish. Spotted some of these little creatures, and I say little, they're between two and five centimeters, and yet just recognized that something wasn't quite right, and that kicked off a whole chain of events that spanned. The last good few years, we first really questioned this one in 2018. So it's taken a fair amount of time, and in that time, we had to set up a whole new partnership with the university in Cadiz in Spain to actually track down exactly what this little creature is, and yeah, whether it is new to science or not. And it was. So it's kind of related to ones that would usually be found in in the med, but it is different, right? Absolutely. So within a couple of hours, really, of looking at this thing, myself and a colleague had narrowed it down to. Looking like an example of a group of species most known from southern Spain, the Mediterranean, etc., and of course that sets off alarm bells in your heads. That you know, are we really seeing what we think we're seeing? And as I say, that kicked off that whole chain of events of contacting the next expert that knows a little bit more than you of that type of species to try and get confirmation. 
Do we have any idea why they might have ended up here in, in colder waters? In all honesty, for this particular species, not yet is the key answer. But the critical thing is because we've been able to give it a name, because we've been able now to publish a, a description of the species, that opens the door to being able to start to piece together the story of this species, where it is, how long it's been there, what it's doing. What I can say is, you know, when we're talking about sea slugs, we have had absolutely definite confirmed records in the last few years of known warmer water species coming into UK waters. Now, that's a safer bet to start to say that's likely an indication of changes as a consequence of climate change. This particular species, the story's just beginning. And so with these sea slugs, I think I'm right in saying that they are, interestingly, in, in their sort of bit of the food chain, they're like the apex predator, aren't they? Absolutely. So, you know, we've got a massive diversity of sea slugs in the UK, over 100 species. And, you know, a lot of them are absolutely tiny. Some do get up to, you know, between five and 10 centimetres, maybe a bit more, but the majority of them are tiny. But as you say, they're performing a crucial role in the ecosystem as top predators. They're doing amazing things, recycling biotoxins and things like that from their prey to defend themselves, to stop them becoming prey. And they're really specific to the animals that they feed on. So as a top predator and being so specific, they're a really important creature for us as scientists to be able to look at because their presence or absence can indicate, yeah. you know, bigger changes that are going on in the ecosystem. Ross Bullimore. Still to come on the Global News Podcast. It is a necessity to radically invite them in with initiatives that say you're invited, specifically you. The row over a play about slavery that will be shown on some nights to black theatre-goers only. As we mark International Women's Day, discover two podcasts from the BBC World Service celebrating women around the world. Where to Be a Woman is the brand new podcast exploring in which countries women are living their best lives. And my award-winning podcast, Dear Daughter, is back for season three. Join me, Namulanta Kombo, as I update my handbook to life for daughters everywhere. Search for Where to Be a Woman and Dear Daughter wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code TARASAGCLARK. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather Charlie Chaplin and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. One billion people, or one in eight of the world's population, are now classed as obese, according to a new report in the medical journal The Lancet. The researchers worked out the figure by examining the height and weight of more than 200 million people. 
It means obesity has overtaken hunger as the biggest threat to global health. Professor Majid Ezati of Imperial College London was the lead author. It's no longer the rich countries like the UK. There are places, many of the island countries in the Pacific, in the Caribbean, some of the countries in Middle East, and some of the transitioning countries like Mexico, like South Africa, and Chile are the ones that now have the highest rates of obesity. We got the details about the study from our global health correspondent, Smita Mundizad. The researchers say that they've been looking for the last 30 years at this data, and they've been really surprised at the speed at which things have changed. Back 30 years ago, people were really worried about countries where people being underweight was the major problem. And now they say, don't forget about the people who are underweight, particularly in the poorer communities. But obesity is becoming a huge problem. In some nations, in some island nations, for example, 70 to 80 percent of the adult population are classed as obese. That is a huge proportion. Um, Why has it become such an issue now? In the island nations, the researchers pointed to the fact that there's been this aggressive marketing of unhealthy food, and you compare that to the availability of healthy food at a price that people can actually manage to get it. But it's not just the island nations. The United States is there in the top 10, for example, and Egypt too makes it into the top 10. They're saying it really is about this balance between how easy it is, how cheap it is for people to get nutritious, healthy food compared to how easy it is to get the unhealthy food. But it's not just an individual's problem, it's the government's problems, it's the health agency's problems. And the Director General of the World Health Organization said it's also about the private sector, that they've really got to take responsibility and be accountable for the effects that their products are having. Yeah, and those effects are likely to be long term. Take us through some of the health issues facing the world's population. It's becoming more and more clear that obesity is causing lots of different health issues within the body. It puts you at increased risk of type 2 diabetes, of heart disease. It can put you at high risk of things like osteoporosis, give you joint pain. It can be difficult psychologically. A lot of people can be depressed. There are so many different ways and also it can increase the chance of certain cancers. So health officials are saying we have got to tackle this problem. Our global health correspondent, Smita Mundizad. On the podcast this time yesterday, you may have heard our report about the young doctors going on strike in South Korea. Well, today, the authorities there have raided the headquarters of the Korean Medical Association following that mass walkout. Celia Hatton reports. The raid was carried out in the offices of the Korean Medical Association in Seoul and other locations outside the capital. The association has accused the government of using intimidation tactics to force nearly 10,000 doctors back to work. They're protesting against government plans to sharply increase the number of medical school places. In South Korea, it's illegal for doctors to strike. And the authorities say those who fail to return to work by Thursday's deadline are now at risk of losing their licenses and face criminal prosecution. Celia Hatton. A Ukrainian man selling a poison thought to be linked to at least 130 deaths in the UK has been identified by the BBC. Leonid Zakutenko advertised his services online promoting suicide. He told an undercover reporter he sent weekly parcels to the UK. Angus Crawford has the details. 
We found that this man, Leonid Zekatenko, has been, in effect, selling what is really a suicide kit, and he's been doing it for years. Now, we've known about him for a couple of years, but after the war in Ukraine began, we thought potentially he would have to cease trading and it would be impossible to confront him. But we did know that then he'd been advertising on what is, in effect, a pro-suicide website, uh, and then his details had been shared globally, and he was sending out this chemical globally. And what really made us look at him again was the arrest of a man called Kenneth Law last year in Canada. You may remember the story. He was supplying the same chemical and he faces now 14 murder charges. So we decided to contact Zakatenko again. An undercover reporter contacted him and we found that he was claiming to be sending five parcels of this poison to the week at UK every single week. So he travelled to Kiev, we confronted him, uh, he of course denied that he was sending this chemical at all. The authorities have known about the pro-suicide forum, about this substance, even about this seller, for years. We know that the first coroner's report about this substance, about this website, was in September 2020, and a first parcel from Zakatenko was intercepted by police in November 2020 as well. So the problem is, it feels like very little is being done, despite the knowledge there may be a lack of joined up thinking inadequacies in the inadequacies in the poisons act it's not a priority but we also know really disturbingly that the police do sometimes make welfare checks to people who buy this substance but often leave the chemical there uh, and we do know that in several incidents people have then gone on to end their own lives angus crawford A theatre in London has caused controversy by announcing plans to hold some shows for black audiences only. The UK government said the idea was wrong and divisive. Slave Play, which was a hit on Broadway, is set on a southern US plantation and stars Kit Harington from the TV series Game of Thrones. The producers say two nights of its run this summer will be aimed at an all-black identifying audience. Stephanie Prentice has been following the story. This is a play that's been described as the most radical Broadway play in years. It's certainly the most Tony nominated, 12 in total. Its creator, Jeremy R. Harris, he says it was written to dissect the wounds and unhealed scars of slavery and in his words, show how far we haven't come. We'll be hearing more from him shortly, but first the premise, it's three interracial couples attending sex therapy, and without giving too much away, slavery plays into their dynamics. Now that concept generated rave reviews, also fierce criticism, and alongside that, this fresh criticism now of the idea to have performances in London's West End just for people who identify as black. Now, it's worth noting the company have done this before in New York. It's called a blackout concept, but it coming to London, it's generated a public response and it has caused the government to respond. So Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's team, they said they're now looking into it to get more of an idea of, of how this could play out. But they've said that restricting audiences on the basis of race would be wrong and divisive. And what do the creators of the play say about this particular issue? Well, the justification given for this concept online on the booking website is that blackout shows, that that's what they call them, are intended for black audiences to experience art in a way that's free from what it calls the white gaze. And the show's creator, Jeremy Harris, he spoke to the BBC about why. There are a litany of places in all of our countries that are generally inhabited by only white people. And no one has questions about that. The idea of a blackout night is to say... 
This is a night that we are specifically inviting Black people to fill up the space, to feel safe with a lot of other Black people in a place where they often do not feel safe. So elsewhere in that interview, he calls this radically inviting people into a space, saying it's necessary to open up the arts. And it plays into other issues he also sees within the theatre world. He speaks about including lower income people who might feel excluded as well from the theatre. Now, the play's UK producers, they've responded to the criticism saying the blackout concept, it's been handed down from the play's Broadway one. So they said they're carefully considering how to incorporate it, but they were clear, they said that no one will be prevented from attending any performance. Stephanie Prentice talking to Nigel Adderley. The workplace has changed a lot for many of us in the past couple of years. Phrases like quiet quitting or lazy girl job have been appearing on social media as people reevaluate what they want from their work lives and their free time, as Claire Williamson reports. Good morning. This is your daily reminder that being mediocre is not always a bad thing. Here's how you can get a lazy girl job today. I always encourage you to think outside of the traditional career box because the old methods are long gone. The future of your career success is staying adaptable to new career strategies. The new year is upon us. There's no more room for I'll fix this. The case for not always striving for perfection and prioritizing other things apart from work has only grown since the pandemic. Gabrielle Judge from Colorado became a TikTok sensation in 2023 with the hashtag LazyGirlJob that's had 43 million views. I started in the tech industry. That's where I come from. That's what my degree is in. And so I grabbed the, you know, the dream job, the one that, you know, your parents are really proud of. Everyone's super excited that you have it, you know, great benefits, things like that. And what I truly learned after a year and a half of being there, that doing good work just meant more work and maybe not getting paid correctly. And so I started to rethink everything. And so that's where my lazy girl job ethos like really started. I just didn't have this like, you know, cutesy marketing term for it yet. My name is Jamie Ducharme, and I am a health correspondent at Time magazine. Last year, Jamie wrote an eye-catching article entitled The Case for Mediocrity, about why we could benefit from not taking work so seriously. It was something I had been thinking about for several years at that point, really starting in 2020, a year where I think a lot of people were reevaluating various aspects of their lives. I was also writing a book at that time. And, you know, for many writers and journalists, writing a book is this huge goal. And it was for me, it was outwardly the most impressive thing I had accomplished in my career up to that point. But I was also not doing great mentally. I was worried about the book all the time. I wasn't sleeping well. I was anxious. And that's when I really started to think about the role that I wanted work to play in my life and and what mediocrity meant and how it could actually potentially be a good thing. Mediocre means ordinary or average, which in a work context is usually quite negative. And they're not really words I'd associate with Jamie. I don't think it has to mean that you're kind of not trying all that hard and mailing it in and and just kind of doing subpar work. What it means to me is doing the things that I've decided are important well, but not pushing myself to do this next thing just because it will look impressive or to constantly feel as though I have to be moving up. And these attitudes are being felt by employers, as I found out at a recent Women in Business lunch, where I met Margot who runs a number of hair salons across London. There is a big change in employees' routine, I believe, in the fact that they really want to focus on their 
mental health and their freedom. So there is a trend regarding the way they want to work. And I would say that many people want to work part-time now to make sure they have time for other things. Much of this resonates with what I heard from Gabrielle Judge and Jamie Ducharme, who are taking control over the way they work. But that's not always an option. There is certainly a degree of privilege in being able to to outwardly say I'm going to take my foot off the gas a little or, or in saying that I'm going to try a little bit less hard. I understand that this is a privileged position to take. I think the closest bit of criticism that I got to that point was a teacher who wrote to me and said, I loved what you wrote, I agree with all of it, but I don't see a way that I can implement that in my work. Essentially, being mediocre is not an option if you want to be a good teacher. Jamie Ducharme ending that report by Claire Williamson. And that is more or less all from us for now, but before we go, here's Jackie with news of this week's Happy Pod. Yes, in this edition, the billion-dollar donation that means hundreds of doctors will qualify without the burden of student debt, the felines and felons providing mutual support in Chile, from driving around your groceries to driving down the fairway, the delivery man who's celebrating a breakthrough in professional golf, also ape mischief and the human sense of humour, and the rise and rise of K-pop. All in the Happy Pod, available from Saturday, the 2nd of March. Thank you, Jackie. This edition of the Global News Pod was mixed by Alana Bowles and produced by Judy Frankel. Our editor's Karen Martin. I'm Oliver Conway. Until next time, goodbye. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers, it's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 